What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everybody, welcome back to Green Milk and Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am so happy to be joined by my friend and former boss, <laughs> Jeff Christensen. Jeff, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Jeff has been on the show uh, once before where we did our episode with Elliot Brown. We had a chance to talk uh, a lot about the handbooks. Uh, Jeff and I are in contact regularly over Marvel databases and crazy characters because uh, Jeff, despite being an incredible veterinary surgeon, is also the founder and owner of the Marvel Universe Appendix that we talk about on the show all the time. Uh, he's also the former editor for the Marvel Handbooks line, uh, working under Jeff Youngquist for the uh, the early 2000s line of handbook books. Uh, did I get all that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about right. Sounds good. Jeff, I'd love to start I was with like the head writer for like 2004 to 2014 and then just got too busy with with my real job and family and everything. So I stepped down and turned it over to um, Michael Sullivan's capable hands. Michael, Michael Sullivan is a fantastic person as well. We talked. To, I, I have never met Mike, actually, but uh, I talked about him with Sarah Brunstad uh, a little while back when she was on my show. Uh, no, Jeff has a busy life. He's got kids. He's got a busy, thriving practice. But you always make time for your nerdy passions as well, which I really love. Uh, I would love to hear, uh, if you're willing to share with people, a little bit of your origin story as kind of a Marvel Comics fan into professional. Yeah, uh, so my brother got me a subscription uh, to Avengers and Amazing Spider-Man, I think back when I was in like second grade, so like 77, 78, I think. And um, and uh, just kind of, you know, I had his his uh, classmates got subscriptions to their friends. And we kind of all shared their books and got to read a bunch of them and, and liked them. And then around like 82, I guess it was, was when the official handbook of the Marvel Universe came out. And that was fantastic. That was, you know, uh, all the information about all the characters and some I'd certainly never heard of. Um, and then there was this appendix portion in the back that was even the more obscure characters um, that just had these little text entries in and everything in that. And that was great. There was a few incarnations of that, uh, three or four volume, three volumes in the 80s and then another volume in the 90s. And then they kind of fizzled out. And even that can be a lot to keep track of. The first volume, the deluxe edition, the master copy. There's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of those books. And then, but they they kind of ended, you know, around 95 or something like that. Um, and there weren't any handbooks uh, then, but around, it was not long after that, that the internet started becoming a thing. And so I, you'd find that there would be X-Men sites and Spider-Man sites, and they would have profiles on the characters. And, uh, but they were all the big, bigger characters and I always wanted to have ones on the um the more obscure characters so I wrote a little bit for the spider fan uh website um doing some of the obscure characters and then I decided I wanted my profiles to be a little bit more like the original uh handbook one so I started my own site and that was the appendix um and named after the original handbook appendixes yeah 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 for the you know it's supposed to be for the lesser known characters and everything um, that wouldn't get profiled elsewhere and build up a, you know, a number of other writers, um, you know, kind of interested and contributed to it, just obviously Chad included. Um, and then uh, around, what was it, 2003 or 2004, they did, um, uh, they started doing the encyclopedias associated with the, uh, you know, trying to promote the movie characters were getting movies and things like that. And so they grabbed the writer or the, people for the web the biggest websites to do those books and so they grabbed the head of uh spider fan website to do the spider-man encyclopedia and these were like hardbound books that were sold in like barnes and noble and other places people were buying them all the time you still see them around a lot the avengers encyclopedia yeah. the x-men encyclopedia etc yeah 
Yep. And so we did those. Um, and I just, you know, kind of, again, I, tried, I got an appendix put in the back of it so we could cover a ton of characters that weren't going to otherwise be featured. Um, and then through that, I got, you know, I guess, um, you know, made my uh, knowledge and interest and in everything known enough that then the uh, editor um, asked me if I wanted to write the Punisher section of the Marvel Knights Encyclopedia. Uh, and that was Daredevil, uh, Ghost Rider, Blade and Elektra. Um, and uh, so I, we wrote that. And then throughout that part, they kind of realized I was, you know, knowledgeable about all the other characters as well. So then they had me run the Fantastic Four Encyclopedia. And then the next thing was I started up the handbooks again in 2004. Um, and they put me in charge of the Avengers handbook and a couple others throughout the um, course of the year. And then by the end of the year, they had put me in charge of the whole handbook series. Um, so ran that, did a, got a whole, just about a whole long box full of, uh, you know, handbooks and projects that we put together over the years and a lot of fun. I feel like uh, me alone, and I was I was one member of this team. I've got my name in, I don't know, 40 or, 40 or 50 Marvel books. And I know for you, it's probably double that. And it's a pretty cool legacy to have as an X-Men fan to to see your name listed as a head writer or to see as uh, listed as the editor. Uh, that decision to go kind of full-time with all of this when you already had a full-time job and a, a, a lot of interest, that must have been uh, a wonky time in your life, I'm sure. Yeah, and it was kind of, I, I could see it. Um, my son was born in 2008, and I could I could just know that, that my free time to be able to deal with the comics and stuff was going to, you know, drop down a lot. And so I, I put, like, everything I had into the Hulk uh, profile, and I you know, reviewed every single issue um, of a Hulk that had the Hulk in it up to that time and covered all the information in that we did like this big eight page Hulk entry. Um, and then from there, then I just, you know, again, recruited, recruited more writers. Um, but it just got, it did get to be, you know, you'd end up doing these rewrites and, you know, things keeping you late in the night and stressful and you had family activities. And so I did eventually step down in 2014 from them. Um, and I just work as a consultant now, you know, Marvel wants to know some information and, or, you know, who could be, you know, who would fit this niche of this character, that sort of thing. And so the editors will come to us and um, we give them that information or they're, they're working on different projects. Um, you know, sometimes doing like the, the recent black Panther um, or the Wakanda series yep. they had an anthology in the back of that. And so um, that was largely, you know, Mike O'Sullivan ran that and grabbed the handbook team and doing that sort of thing. So they're always, always doing something. What is your level of involvement with projects now? Do you find a lot of offers coming your way? And is it hard to uh, sign up for them or turn them down? I don't do much. <laughs> I try not to do much. I, I, you know, they, they'll have, you know, they always need, uh, you know, Marvel doesn't have a lot of the, um, a lot of the issues. And so then when they're doing some of the masterworks or things like that, they'll need people to scan um, the original issues. And so I try to, I try to not do that, but there are some things that no one else can do. So I help out with that. And then, you know, there's, again, I, I kind of, I, I receive all the emails and I see as long as someone else can handle them and answer them, then I, um, I don't worry overly about them. Just let them work out on their own. Um, unless it's something that has, a, you know, something I'm really, really interested in, but then if, if they can't, um, if no one else knows it, then I'll go pull the books and see if I can sort, you know, help sort it out. So I don't now, think too much. I'm mostly just a consultant. If you go back to your youth and the books that really mattered the most to you, that maybe you have uh, the biggest areas of nostalgia for, what were the ones that spoke to you most? Well, I, Avengers is what I started with. Um, and so I've, I've always liked the Avengers, you know, like the variety and the team and the changing membership. And I just generally like the stories and the characters. Uh, Hulk is my favorite character through all his um all his different incarnations and probably the sort of the the merged character that peter david had um i, I probably enjoyed those series uh the most um always like spider-man um likable guy and you know always always having his problems um but doing the best uh uh you know um i i, I probably am not um i i like the older stories 
uh, a lot more than um, some of the current ones. Um, it's harder harder to keep up with um, and uh, harder to tell like what direction they're going. And sometimes things go way out there and then the next next series comes along and they reboot reboot everything back to the way it was so it's a different uh, time yeah. it's, it's things done by season you get a creative team usually for just a few issues or a few months or maybe a year yeah. sometimes they last a few years i don't know if you read uh for example al ewing's immortal hulk from a few years ago it was a mm-hmm. phenomenal version of that character and i haven't really liked what became before or after <laughs> if i'm honest uh, but I, but now that I'm getting yeah. to know professionals and interviewing people regularly, we use that that phrase of you know how the sausage is made, right? Like you see all the editorial and merchandising and legal and all the different components that come together to make this stuff happen, and it's that way for the handbooks too. The handbooks are a joy to read and collect, but there's so 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 many hours of research and painstaking. I mean, I've shared on the show like writing the the I think it was a three page entry on the character Claw. Even that probably took me about 25 hours of committed time to research and then another three or four to write and then another three or four to edit. And I got paid like 60 bucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it all comes down to like a dollar an hour by the time you're you're done with it. So you're it's not something I was doing to pay the bills, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's the thing you, you do because you enjoy it. Yeah, or you I mean you're spending a lot of time on it. What were the uh the joys and or stressors uh of running that handbook team for so many years? I know I know your life went through a lot of changes at that time, getting married, having kids, etc. Yeah. Well, the I mean what I always enjoyed the most is, you know, one story happens and a character ends up here and then the next story happens and the character is there and trying to piece together or, or there's two different, you know, it seems like two different events are contradicting, trying to find a way that, you know, makes it makes both stories true without throwing anything out um, was always a fun thing to me to do. And that was kind of Stan Lee had come up with the no prize, um, which was, you know, you get no prize. But uh, it was if you could if you could show uh, a correct answer that, you know, made both stories true. So I always like doing that. And then I really enjoyed getting uh contacting the original creator and getting their input and maybe they provide a real name that wasn't there before or a name for a relative or they just explain something um that we didn't have before that was always that was always a lot of fun um it's interesting to get to know people from you know across the world from uh you know certainly all over america uh canada uh, england scotland austria uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, all over the place. So it's, and I've got writers, uh, you know, for the appendix who are uh, from Italy and, and different parts of the parts of the world. So a lot of fun with that. Um, the, you know, seeing the finished product and getting the, getting the information out there's um, always a lot of fun getting there, you know, all the, all the reviews. And then when we submit our corrections and then there are errors made with the corrections, then you have to recorrect those or they change, you know, sometimes the editorial process, they would think they're correcting something and they would make it wrong and they wouldn't tell us that they changed it. So you'd have to reread the profile each time to catch the changes that they made um, and, and going through all that over and over again. That was always that was always exhausting and time consuming and half the time. You know, you're trying to deal with people in different time zones and staying up late and um, you know having to work the next day and everything like that. So that was always that was always hard. And then, you know, there's just a certain way that things are supposed to be done. And, you know, I think a lot of people uh, doing handbook uh, information want to be creative and and um, use their own style. But that's not really you know what the handbooks are intended to be. It's more supposed to be like encyclopedic information um so it was always you know having to go through and make all the corrections to the formatting and everything like that which would then distract me from the actual information like i would you know mm-hmm. i would pick out the formatting errors but then once you've read something once your mind doesn't recognize it as wrong if you read it you know again the second time um but fortunately we'd have different people reviewing who go through and catch things but even now you know, Michael Sullivan's always going back through the handbooks and he finds errors and we correct them and, you know, working on keeping all the profiles all correct and up to date. 
It's exhausting, uh, the amount of mistakes that can slip through in something like this. The word the appearing twice in a row, or the wrong first appearance, or the year, or the wrong art getting uh, attributed to the wrong person, you know, the the, the little things, but also the big continuity gaps, because uh, you have one person reading all these characters, and then a team of people proofreading the same thing. The advent of the internet was such a seminal thing for you and I. I know we're mostly of the same age. I think we're a couple of years apart, but I was in high school when the internet started, started to become prominent. And I can remember connecting with uh, X-Men fan sites for the first time and reading the history. And you got to remember back then, you had to track down back issues if you wanted to read this stuff and you had to have a huge collection. And if you couldn't find certain things or afford the early X-Men stuff, it wasn't easy to find those, uh, those issues until they started being reprinted years later. Now, I remember putting this in context with my own timeline, because I share a lot of my story with my listeners, but I was just off my Mormon mission and in my first year of college when I discovered the appendix as a fan. And I remember I was a pretty lonely, kind of quiet, very focused, uh, you know, little Mormon kid at the time who was like very closeted. And I remember like sitting down, I started with like the letter A, the first entry, and I just started reading through all of these uh, incredible entries on your site and learning about a lot about the different corners of the Marvel Universe. And it was about a year later when I reached out to you directly and uh, I'd like, hey, let me do a profile. And I, my first profile on your site, if I'm remembering right, was Ung the Unspeakable from the Avengers. It was this random god-like character with the, I don't remember those three weird, there's like a pyramid. Tetrarchs of Entropy. Yeah, the Tetrarchs of Entropy. Good Lord. <laughs> um, so we uh, these kind of random ideas of putting these characters that aren't remembered otherwise. And then I remember delving deep into like the Defenders and the X-Men and the Daredevil stuff. I've written uh, well over a thousand profiles for your site over the years. Uh, and at the same time, I was writing uh, Survivor Marvel Comics fan fiction up on the comic board sites. And I think it was uh, Marco English who initially uh, talked to me and said, hey, what, what about the handbook team? I mean, so envision this as fans of the comics now. I don't think this could happen now, but imagine being nerds that are connecting with other nerds and writing things that you like, and then being hired by Marvel to do this really fun work and have your names in the books. It, it was a wild time to be a fan and a creative professional. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. That's uh, that part of it all. Yeah, I mean, when we got um, when we got to help out with the Spider-Man encyclopedia, that was that was so cool. And I mean. I don't know how many, you know, I felt like I was, you know, spending six hours of every evening or whatever, working on that for, I don't know how many weeks and months. And we got, you know, special thanks, <laughs> but my name was in the book, you know, that was really cool. I couldn't wait, you know, to tell that. And then, and then the next book, obviously getting paid to do it. And then you get your check, you know, you get the little check with Spider-Man on it. Um, that was always really cool. But yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of like one step know, down from like an intern. I've met a number of people, including Gabriel Schechter, who uh, interned at Marvel. And you never even get the special thanks often. You're just running around doing all the work and making things happen. And <laughs> it yeah. felt a little like that at times. Uh, but it was still really cool to get that check in the mail with Spider-Man on it. You know, that was an amazing feeling. Yeah. Yep. And that's always things like I talk to about, you know, talk to people and you know, like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a veterinary surgeon. That's interesting. You know, a lot of people, you know, have pets and, and like that and everything and, and you know, where are you from and all that. And then uh, it just happened, it comes up and like, yeah, and I also am the, you know, freelance writer for Marvel Comics and like, you know, what? Yeah. You know? And like that, holy, you know, that totally, <laughs> you know, everyone's interested and in ask questions about that. That's a, now, it's a great, you know, like, fun fact. Like, yeah, I used to do this. Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, you know, they don't believe you and then look it up but yeah it's a it's a lot of fun uh i know I, again we've gotten older as we go when i left the handbooks is kind of when my life fell apart and uh, i know managing big personalities especially with people who had a lot going on at the time uh was probably uh, I, I i've always appreciated that you are all business and that you get things done but you're also like very friendly and warm you you were great to work for you and jeff youngquist both uh, but when I came out in 2011, it was when I kind of officially left the team. I think I did a little bit of work into 2012, uh, but my life fell apart and then got put back together. And uh, then I wrote a bunch of stuff and then I started doing more appendix stuff when the pandemic hit. And then that eventually turned into this 
crazy show that I'm doing now, which is a lot of fun, but it's like intersecting all of my interests at the same time. Uh, but it's it's kind of a cool thing to have grown older with. I'm 44. I sound like I'm 80 as I say something like that. But like these uh, these connecting points have been like a literal part of my entire adult life. This uh, These different parts of work are intersecting with creative uh, ventures. It's a lot of fun. And I still take joy, even doing episodes like this, it feels like I'm putting together a handbook entry. Uh, but we just get to talk about it and nerd out about it out loud too. <laughs> Um, we're literally going to take time reviewing a uh, 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 handbook entry that I wrote today for the appendix, which you can find at uh, marvunap, M-A-R-V-U-N-A-P-P.com, which is the site that Jeff maintains still. Uh, they did a recent uh, extraterrestrial races event, and I decided to write about the Sidri, who are the alien hive minds that the X-Men fight. Uh, do you want to talk to people a little bit about the appendix events that come out maybe once a year or so? It's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, um, Luke and uh, and um, you know Jacob tend to um, organize those a lot, but they've done various you know for whether it's Spider Man's anniversary or alternate reality Spider Man's um, or just alternate realities. Uh, with the this was a one we did um, on not from this not from this Earth so aliens uh alien technology uh extra dimensional characters like from the microverse or negative zone and things like that um we're all um included I, I think we ended up i think we ended up with like close to 100 um characters getting um put in that and added a bunch of them and then we it was kind of fun like putting together i don't know if i we added into the um the sidri one um but there was a few different uh um insect races that were included in that and so we went on the um the facebook group and just asked if you know anyone had a collection of them and so uh david uh zuckerman and um stewart came up with a ton of them and so i think on the um i did one on uh i was gonna do one on the undying and then actually realized that they didn't really actually appear anywhere because they're like these telepathic characters so um we did uh the progeny for the ultra from the ultraverse line and um a couple other insect ones and rattled off like a list of i'd say like 50 or 60 alien insectoid races to be used as clarifications for them um and uh so it was, it was fun you know hitting back from golden age stories from the 40s or stories from the 50s and 60s up till now characters races um some alien who knows what race they are they just appeared in one issue there's was space cabbie uh was one of them just some <laughs> alien guy who drove uh i think um sam guthrie cannonball around in a cab in space for a while and um so all kinds of interesting stuff with that Marvel has a huge universe that just is ever expansive. And then it goes into different timelines and alternate futures and, you know, et cetera. Some of them are widely explored, like the Shi'ar and the Kree and the Skrulls. Others are uh, consistent uh, in specific titles, like the Sidri, of course, are mostly associated with the X-Men. Uh, and then you have some obscure ones that showed up in like one issue of the Fantastic Four and then like maybe in the uh, maximum security event in one other issue, you know, like the, the database for all this stuff is really fun. And Jeff has created a really cool set of like classification systems for his website, which often get used in the handbooks as well. So it's fun to try to build these worlds out uh, and to remember all the different things and where they come from. I know, uh, Jeff, I think I'm speaking for you, but I think I've got this right. One of the biggest frustrations for me doing the handbooks is keeping track of the like alternate reality designations and like this never ending exhaustive list of futures and dream worlds and like parallel universes. It's pretty exhausting. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I'm the one who comes up with all the numerical designations for them and I've gotten... Um there's gotten to be so many of them you know someone hits me up and like hey i need a reality designation for this group for this timeline and so i come up with one and add it in there and then um you know it's on the website for a while and someone's like you know someone got a designation for that one for another story a while back and so they're getting some repetitions and some mistakes and so actually um 
have been working somewhat with uh, James Cope, the one of the writers for the Marvel database. Um, and so his team, he and his team have been really helpful um, at making sure I'm not replicating something. I always send them an, an, uh, an email and just to keep things so I don't have to type it all out. Um, it's like uh, unique and undesignated. That was what always, you know, I always have that. So I send a reality designation and make sure it's not one already covered and that there isn't already a designation for that. Um, actually, one of the things I was thinking of that's that was hardest to um, keep track of is, you know, one one profile might have originally been written by one, you know, one writer in the past and and from someone else. But like, say, like the the uh, Cree scroll war. If you look in the entry for the Cree and you look in the entries for the scrolls and you look in the entries for the supreme intelligence they all have different timelines of the events and we kind of made the mistake of or perpetuating that sort of thing because when we did the entry for the cree we worked from the original cree entries and did that and you know it wasn't it was actually um one of the other uh he writes for the appendix as well. Donald, Donald Campbell. He's the one who won that Quasar name, the character contest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's the one who pointed out all the erroneous information now. So now we just have to be kind of nebulous with it because there's all this different information out there. Um, and there's no correct answer known at this point. Um, so there's a there's a bajillion alternate timelines and there's an infinite number of universes and you know every time Kang the Conqueror goes to another place it's a new timeline and it's a lot to keep track of I think uh, I mean it's pretty popularly known that Chris Claremont uh, when Excalibur came around and he developed the Captain Britain corpse he called our planet Earth 616 which is of course referenced frequently uh, which means there's a, a database where every universe out there has a different number. When you're coming up with a reality designation for uh, for another reality, how do you, what's the formula you use to come up with the numbers? Well, so the, the, it actually does, it, it predates um, Excalibur significantly. It was actually either back, back in the late 70s um, in either the original Captain Britain um, comics or even even before that is when it was used i think we've got it i think we've got it detailed on the appendix when it was but anyway one of the theories of where the 616 date came from was that it was supposed to have been um like june 1961 and that was kind of um shoehorned into being like the the date of the um publication of fantastic four number one that's not really quite accurate. I mean, it was 61, but, um, you know, the, the dates that they were written and published and then they had the, the cover date is a little different from that in terms of the month. So but that was one of the theories. And then the reality was, is that they just they just picked a random number, whereas D.C. has Earth one and Earth two and Earth three and Earth four, whatever they they wanted to have just some random number to show that this earth is just one of any number of them but nonetheless i've kind of used that format of month and date and we started out using you know three numbers and it became you know clear the more you do that the more you're going to run out and the more you're likely someone else is to overlap the same thing so we started doing four and then i've mostly settled on five five digits it does typically start out um, with the date of the first appearance, um, and then I'll often use uh, the lettering um, in the names of the stories and characters and things involved. And then if we check and that's already one that's used or, you know, there's seven new realities or characters from the same story, then we do something different. We change the numbers up add some of them together but it's all some you know some sort of basis on the on the the series name um and the numbering which kind of comes out to be random um you know there's no real system with it which kind of fits the random nature of the universe writers not only love to do a thing where like spider-man gets punched through reality you see him in one page pass through like kill raven and also the age of apocalypse and also you know with these like marvel yeah. zombies like you see these ones that are referenced over and over again you'll also see stories where they'll introduce one character that 
has 25 versions of them from different realities all on the same page. And every one of those then gets its own designation. Like every time a character has a dream, it's another one. This has nothing to do with the Sid dream, but this is an example of how the how the sausage is made where the behind the scenes of all this can get really comprehensive and it's a lot to keep track of. Now, the Sidri themselves is one of many uh, what they call hive minds. There are species like bumblebees or certain versions of bumblebees that they kind of share uh, an electrochemical or pheromonical connection with each other. We see this used in fiction all the time. We've seen it in Star Wars and Star Trek. For those that have watched The Last of Us, the like mushroom zombies in that show have a hive mind. You kill one and the other, the rest of the species knows. Uh, we also see characters that can divide themselves up and have a weird form of hide mind. Multiple Man is a great example of this. I'm thinking of the character Colony from the Shi'ar Death Commandos, who's like a hive nest of bugs that split apart. Uh, the Sidri is sort of like that. Uh, I'm going to read their power section that I put together for the appendix entry just out loud. Uh, as an example of you take all their appearances and then try to put it all in one place to describe their powers and abilities. The individual members of the Sidri are sentient, intelligent creatures that are primarily a deep ebon black in color with an eye-shaped pink triangle on the surface and a yellow patch on their underbellies. Lacking faces, the creatures possess long black wings and a few extra tail-like tendrils. The closest description I can give using earth creatures is like a, sting a little stingray with spindly spider legs and bat wings. They can walk along their legs or glide through the air. Individual Sidri can take on multiple forms from small insectoid creatures with spidery legs to winged creatures that can fly through the sky and they are able to fire concussive beams from the pink triangle form on the uh, pink pink triangle on their form that resembles an eye and which is accompanied by a shree sound immune to telepathic scans these creatures are themselves part of a collective hive mind in contact with other members of their species uh, consistently the Sidri speak to each other in a unique language, likely conveyed telepathically. The Sidri can combine their forms to create larger constructs, generally a large ship that is capable of surviving in and flying across the cold and vacuum of deep space at warp speed, surviving without oxygen and resistant to extreme cold of space. The Sidri get stronger when combined into larger forms. Sidri can also combine to form more humanoid structures with arms and legs. The combined Sidri are extraordinarily strong and durable, but are resistant to sonic and energy attacks and especially to extreme heat, which can disrupt their collected shapes, scattering them back into their original forms. The Sidri lay clutches of eggs in communal nests, which hatch after an unrevealed amount of time. Lacking obvious external oral, uh, aural, oral, nasal, or other features, it is unrevealed how they feed or perform other functions. A small group of Sidri were mutated by a Shi'ar virus, we'll tell that story in a minute, becoming mutants, sort of, and they were separated from the hive mind, rejected by the Sidri for being individuals. These mutant Sidri could combine into one powerful humanoid form wearing a suit of radiation armor. Uh, they were capable of human speech and emotions, were super strong, and could emit a sticky gel. After absorbing some of the transmode virus, the mutants seemed capable of altering their mutation and hoped to be accepted back by the hive mind. I mean, I could go on from there, but that's uh, that's a comprehensive coverage of just what it's like to write these uh, these entries. Uh, do you have a connection as a fan to the Sidri? I know they're one of many, many races, and you're not, I mean, I know you like the X-Men, but you're, you're not the biggest X-Men fan in the world. Well, that's actually the first X-Men comic that I ever read. Um, X-Men uh, 154. Uncanny X-Men, or actually just X-Men on the title, on the cover, uh, number 154. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Uh, you can see my copy covers off of it because i've oh, read yeah. it you know so many times um and uh but yeah that's the that was the first actual x-men comic i had and that was my ex first exposure to any of the characters and it was really you know it was a cyclops and storm story but the other characters were in it a little bit and i didn't know who they were um or what their powers were that they, even that they were all mutants i remember you know i was probably 10 years old at the time it came out and uh I remember thinking, oh, I don't, I don't like the Cyclops character. He's like his advisor gives him the powers. Like I didn't think, I didn't know that he had the power himself. 
Um, and I didn't like Wolverine because I, I thought he just had the gloves with the knives in them. And <laughs> I didn't realize, again, the nature of it, too. I just I always liked the characters that had the more powers themselves. Um, but, yeah, the Sidri were really cool, you know, and especially when, you know, all these scrambling around, um, fast moving kind of crab spider things, um, shooting, you know, those laser beams or whatever blast, a concussive blast out of their whether it's an eye or what it is. I don't know how they're, they do anything. They don't have eyes or mouths or anything else. Yeah, anything else on the rest of their body. Um, you know, that was kind of one of the things we speculate. I don't know. We don't know how they eat, or we just say or or perform other functions. I wouldn't have to specify <laughs> on that, but uh, you don't know. Do they just replicate? You know, are they um, splitting apart or whatever? But yeah, then when they merged into this gigantic thing, um, uh, and then were eventually broken apart. I kind of when I was when I was rereading the uh, profile last night, it kind of struck me funny, um, you know, where they're like, "Oh, can anything stop them?" And uh, Corsair's like, "Oh yeah, you know, um, a large amount of heat is what will stop them." And then what does Storm do but use rain and wind against them right afterwards, which wasn't really the what they were looking for. But they got a weapon <laughs> later, and well, they had just blew them up. <laughs> yeah, Corsair blew him up at the end of it. But now there are a number of uh, established alien races at Marvel that are widely explored quite frequently, and it's really interesting because there's a common storyline where writers will come along and give them mutant members of their species. We have the Scrolls, and then there's like the Cadre K characters, right? Uh, we have the Brood, and then there's Brew the alien. We have uh, the Symbiotes, and there's like that character Zix, which is considered the alien symbiote. We also have a, a, a mutant uh, Sidri story. We've also got a lot of modern writers taking these characters, and the Sidri are some of the less established ones that are giving modern, or excuse me, origins to them from modern books. So like the Brood were recently revealed in X-Men to be like an ancient uh, Kree experiment that went kind of crazy. We'll talk more about that another time. The Sidri in a recent issue of X-Men, uh, there's a text page that tells us there's a group called the Black Judges who were under the employ of the Supreme Intelligence who sought to create a weaponized drone race. And they experimented on several races, including the Sidri, the Scatter, the Phalanx, and, uh, and more, but they only considered the Brood successful. We also get mentioned in some of the early handbooks and more modern handbooks that the Sidri are, uh, that they evolved in an isolated free-floating asteroid cluster. Uh, and they're, uh, they're also called the Sidrian Hunters often. This is a group that is intelligent enough to accept bounties. We don't exactly know what their motivation are, but they get hired by people to, to go like as intergalactic bounty hunters across the galaxy and uh, try to take people down. And that's where we originally meet them. This is a Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum creation. They are after Cyclops's dad, Corsair, who's on the run and lands on Earth, and the Sidri are right behind them. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Uncanny X Men One Fifty Four? It's a pretty, it's a pretty decent issue, actually. Yeah, well, it was kind of came at a time um, when uh, you know Cyclops had been the the leader of the X Men for the longest time, and then um, he had taken a period of time off after um, Jean Grey had died. Um, or appeared to have died as Phoenix. Um, and so he was kind of coming back. And so there was definitely some antagonism in competition between Cyclops and Storm. Um, and it kind of started, the story started out and they were having like this little handball sort of uh, game that they were playing, but using their powers um, in it. But it was, you know, there was definitely some actual rivalry between the two of them. Um, and I think they, they were all, they were some of the, the only ones at the mansion at the time, because this was when um, they had, they the X-Men were making their base on that uh, island and the Bermuda Triangle yeah, um, yeah. that Magneto had had. Um, so most of them were out there. Professor X was out there and uh, Nightcrawler and Colossus and little his little sister uh iliana iliana before she before she went to limbo and aged into magic wolverines out there uh carol danvers um before you know she lost her powers rogue um she had this major fight with rogue um who was an agent of mystique at the time and when she was, was back before she ever joined the x-men she was on associated with the brotherhood of evil mutants and they had such a strong fight. It lasted so long 
that Rogue permanently stole her powers. Um, so she, she was no longer Ms. Marvel. Um, and so she was, but she, um, she, you know, had some other history as, um, you know, working in NASA and other things like that. And so an interesting character. Um, so she was kind of associated with the X-Men, but Cyclops and Storms were the only ones back at the mansion. And then, um, Corsair, um, you know, he's fleeing from them. So his ship comes crashing into the water and they go in and rescue him. And then, you know, they don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden they're ambushed by these characters. Um, I don't, I'm trying to, re I didn't reread the whole issue. I was trying to remember, I believe either, um, I, I believe that Storm had known from back around X-Men 108 or whatever, when they had the, uh, the, um, the fight with the, the, you know, back when, um, the Ken was with, uh, the leader of the Shi'ar and they had the big fight with the Imperial Guard and all oh, that. Yeah, yeah. I the believe battle on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. And when it's like the early appearance of the star jammers, I think storm found out that Corsair was Cyclops dad during that story. But for some reason, he vowed her to silence or whatever about it. So she never said a word about yeah, it. Yeah, there's been a lot of so, hints at it for a while. Claremont built up this mystery for a long time. Yeah, there's even a point yeah. where Cyclops grows a mustache and looks at himself and is like, oh, I look a lot like Corsair. I mean, it goes, it goes on yeah, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but there's something happens. They um went right after, uh, right after, um, Corsair crashes into uh the the water then they have this um he has a dream about you know um their past and then Cyclops finds his uh his dog tags and the um the locket that has uh that has the young um Scott and Alex Summers in it and that's when he reveals that they're parents and and he just says no way you're lying and then before they get into anything else all of a sudden this crab monster comes flying through the window and shoots this shree energy blast uh, and the, the, and the visuals on the sidri are really cool it's this like sleek design that reforms i almost want to picture it in like a modern like cgi format because it's really yeah. cool you blast it apart it scatters and then comes back together it flies fast it shoots hard it, it, it's a really deadly unexpected force we've never quite seen something like this in an x-men comic before yeah so it was a cool story they you know they were on the run from them and then um uh you know the the things all merged together you can see them that they, they take off in the um in the the blackbird um their ship their jet and then you see all the things on the ground and then all of a sudden they merge into this gigantic thing that um takes off after them and it's like you know this 747 or some other plane flying around has to move out of the way because it almost gets smashed into by this gigantic sidri um and then they go along and they end up i think psych they blast it and then cyclops blasted and and um uh storm hits it with a couple uh lightning bolts that weaken its cohesion enough that then cyclops just punches the um the blackbird the ship right through it and then um I don't know if they land down by a oil um oil refinery or what it is. Yeah, but, like Corsair uh, triggers this like yeah, giant yeah. explosion. Yeah, he just like blows the whole thing up. And yeah, right before that, Cyclops are like, wait, they're alive. And Corsair's like, Yep, boom, but not anymore. Um, and uh so they do that. But then of course they laid eggs there. Um, and so those come back to haunt them. It's a it's a pretty it's a pretty great intro story for this kind of crazy wonky character. It's a cool foe for the X Men to fight, right? They fight all different kinds of villains, some with heart and some who are just pure evil. But this is a bounty hunter colony from from outer space uh, that's pursuing them across the planet. It's a really fun issue. X Men one fifty four is a wonderful comic book, and then we and don't it pulls see... right into at the end of it. You know, he comes in and relays that you know. Lo uh, Lalandra um, has been, um, you know, overthrown and kidnapped, and so that's like again my first introduction to that. Then they go off 
they go off and um, get all involved in that. And there's all these, they have these, you know, the Imperial Guard has all these members, but they have a couple people that just like appear in like a panel or a couple issues, all these cool aliens. And we've tracked down, you know, original art to them and information from Cockrum to get their real, like the names of the characters. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've added them into the, uh, the appendix. The one that always stands out when I think of them is Nerillery. Which yeah. has like three apostrophes. Yeah. <laughs> that guy with the, yeah, there's like some cat, fish, whatever deal with these <laughs> pinion ears and all sort of stuff. I mean, it was like just a couple issues after this one, you know, you're just reading the issues and getting to know the characters. And uh, Psych, uh, Colossus is, is fighting um, some of the characters and someone throws this, he's got this, uh, um corrosive thing that's like eating through his eating through his armored form and they in order to somehow treat him whatever he's got to turn back to human and as soon as he does it then Deathbird just shoves a spear through his chest and kills him you're like what the heck of course he doesn't die because then they got Sikorsky the other little insectoid mm -hmm. the little helicopter right Sikorsky is the name of a, a company that um makes a lot of helicopters and uh and and jets and things like that but yeah he they saved him so he didn't die but. i love Deathbird. we haven't got to her on my show yet obviously because we're in the early 70s still but it's uh she's one of my favorites i i think she's a fantastic character uh badass. The, the sidri really only have about four prominent appearances uh so they first appear in 1982 in the story we just talked about uh they they show up in x-men 168 where uh the kitty fights like a, a small nest of them but it's a very short story uh you see kitty colossus and lockheed battling a small group of sidri and, and then they're gone for a long time until 1996 baby and is writing uh captain marvel and we see them very briefly in that story which involves uh davin shikari the eric the red character uh, who has a group called the Crystal Claws, and they send a group of Sidri to apprehend uh, Adam X the Extreme, uh, but it, they're, they're taken down pretty quickly. Uh, we see them in Wolverine 135 uh, and 136 in 1999, which is Eric Larson's run on the book, where they're working for the Collector very briefly. And again, they're sometimes called the, the Sidrian Hunters, uh, but the next time we really get a big story about them is in Excalibur. Uh, during Ben Robb's uh, 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 final run on that title. And I've had Ben on the show a couple of times. He's a friend of mine at this point. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this story. Apparently what we've learned is there's a group of Sidri who survived the, uh, the X-Men's previous battle. Uh, there's also, and I, I'm going to read the flashback the way that I wrote it for the entry out loud here. Uh, in space near Earth, the X-Men and the Starjammers had just survived their first epic battle with the Brood, and they were in a rush back to Earth so they could save Professor X, who had been implanted with a Brood egg, but they passed a Sidri ship in distress. And they debated about the ethics of letting the Sidri die, but determined they had no choice. So Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride, wanting to save the Sidri, deployed what they called a Chiar revitalization serum, which was actually a mutation virus that would puncture the Sidri ship and rewrite their genetic codes, which they hoped would save them. But the Sidri in this ship mutated, grew massive in size, turned purple and yellow in coloring, and then they tried to return to the Sidri homeworld, but they were no longer accepted, seen as abominations, and cast out. So this is a backstory that's told in a series of flashbacks in Excalibur, where we see Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler, who are part of Excalibur, obviously, trying to do something good, but resulting in mutating this group of Sidri who now, of course, uh, want revenge. So in Excalibur 116, 117, we see this group of mutated Sidri on Earth, and they're hired by the group Black Air to hunt down certain members of Excalibur. Uh, Jeff, do you have any thoughts on Black Air? We don't need to talk in detail about this group. It's a, it's an evil government organization in England. That's kind of all you need, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, Pete Wisdom, you know, kind of came from that group um associated with some of those characters and yeah it was some you know one of those um you know dark groups that's kind of uh hidden and um almost you know whether they're government oriented um and then kind of went off on their own and uh yeah but one of those mysterious groups like that these mutant Sidri uh, are happy to go after Excalibur. They want revenge anyway. You can you see them like bulk up into like a really powerful form to fight Colossus. 
Uh, they're overwhelming the members of Excalibur that they're fighting. Uh, they're super invulnerable, super strong. But then there's the character Douglock among them. Uh, Jeff, introduce Douglock for us. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's one of the characters that kind of lose track of exactly what's going on. So <laughs> in the early days, like they're looking to have like a friend for Kitty Pride, um, who's a genius and someone her own age. And so she had this friend, um, uh what, Doug Ramsey? Doug Ramsey or, or Cypher, yeah. Who's an yeah, X-Men favorite, yeah. or any mutant's favorite. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't supposed to be a mutant originally. He was just, you know, someone who was, she's a genius, he's really smart, they both worked on computers, but then, yeah, he turns out, because he hangs out with the X-Men, why not make him a mutant too? And so they made him into Cypher, who could, his powers were to be able to decipher any any language. And he's a huge part of the Krakoan era, obviously. He's uh, he's big on the, on the island now. Yeah. Um, but he was minor at the time because that's like, you know, basically up oh, here comes, um, you know, Magneto. He's throwing a gigantic uh, planets or a building sized metal rock at us. What can you do? I can speak a bunch of languages, you know, but <laughs> so he wasn't you know able to do a whole lot in most combat situations. And he was kind of and he knew that. And he was kind of like the weak point of the team on some things and other things. He would be the key to victory because he could decipher something the rest of them couldn't do machine languages and patterns and more than just just simple language um but then this other character warlock came around uh and he's this alien and again i think they made him a mutant of the technarch too um but they that's this race of sort of uh cybernetic beings and then they have this contagious virus that they they convert someone with their transmode virus and then would absorb their life force for energy. And so that was like a big thing as, you know, of, of facing his father, the, the Magus. Um, uh, I never know if it's, you know, it's the gift of the Magi. Is it the Magus? It doesn't, neither name sounds really I pronounce good. it. I pronounce it Magus. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I do it too. But when I say it out loud, it doesn't, neither way sounds right. I don't, I don't know. Some things look a lot better in writing than they do sound out loud. Um, but anyway, so he comes and he's like, he can change shapes. He's this alien character who has a weird way of speaking, um, but he's, he's really powerful. And he bonded um, initially just, uh, you know, emotionally and, and socially with Doug Lock, with, uh, with Doug. And then it, you know, when danger would, um rear its head and they would have to protect him warlock would you know sometimes go around him and form armor and so the two of them you know he would get involved and then at some point it seemed like they'd spent so much time together that doug had actually been infected with the transmode virus and i don't honestly doug i gets... don't i would have to go pull the entry on doug lock to figure out what the deal was well doug gets killed by the animator and then warlock seemingly dies during the extinction agenda and then there's a point where there's a form of it seems like to be doug and warlock merged it's like a, a transmode virus version of doug who's now a full-fledged member of excalibur he's like very yellow very metallic he has a little romance with kitty pride and it's like a combination of these two characters and both warlock and cypher are back uh in the regular comics the transmode virus is also widely used in a lot of X-Men comics in a lot of areas. It's tightly connected to the phalanx and other things. And it's another thing that has been reinterpreted by modern writers. But we'll talk more about that another time. The relevance here is Doug Locke is a member of the team. They're fighting the mutant Sidri. And there's a moment where uh, they notice, the Sidri notice Doug Locke among the heroes. And they try to take on his like phalanx technology and try to interface using it, use it to interface with the Sidri collective mind again, because they want to go back home to their race. But Pete Wisdom is there and he triggers a massive explosion that stops them from killing Douglock. But then they feel like they have enough data to join their race again and they like take off into space. Uh, I, I, li I like Ben Rabel, Ben Rabel a lot. He's such a great guy. And this is a deep dig at this time in the Excalibur run to take these old characters and kind of respin them in this mutant way. I, I thought it's a pretty fun story uh, overall. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the mutant Sidri? 
Well, the more I was thinking about it, I, I think they probably could be like split off from the the existing entry and get their own get their own entry yeah. uh, that would show more of their forms. Because um, uh, you know, looking at them and trying to um, you know remember everything from them, um, it, it kind of is you know it's one part of the Sidri entry. But I think they could probably get expanded into their their own to show all the different their combined forms or separate forms and, and that sort of thing um i really i really did not remember that story <laughs> at all um until i read you know until i was reading your um uh reading your sidri entry and um I was like oh yeah that's that's happened yeah so and i forgot that it had taken place exactly when it had taken place um the flashback and everything but yeah yeah, it's in the middle of this portion of Excalibur people don't often remember, but it's a pretty decent story. I actually uh, really enjoyed revisiting it. In uh, 2014, Mark Guggenheim is on the X-Men, and we see the Sidri very briefly attacking a sword station. They're after Deathbird because they've been hired by a group we do not need to talk about called the Providian Order. Uh, and they kind of swarm the ship, and they face characters like Abigail Brand and Manifold Tiger and the X-Men, but they are uh, repelled by a bunch of weather attacks and psychic attacks. Uh, they show up very briefly in Nova Volume. This is another thing that's hard to keep track of, is what the volume numbers of various titles are. Nova Volume 7, number 1, where they briefly fight Nova over uh, Ego the Living Planet. But their last most prominent story has been a recent one. Uh, but it seems like it got kind of shanghaied a little bit. Uh, Jonathan Hickman put them into giant size X-Men Nightcrawler number one in 2020. This is after the Krakoan era has now formed. The X-Men are living in their nation and the X-Mansion has been abandoned. And we learned that there's a pack of Sidri that has uh, laid a nest of eggs in this uh, in, in the abandoned X-Mansion Lady Mastermind, who is the daughter of the original Mastermind, Regan Wingard, who a lot of a lot of people really love this character. She has illusion, psychic powers. Uh, she shows up in the mansion to try to pass through the gate, and the newly hatched Sidri eggs capture her, and they began kind of using her powers to lash out with like hallucinations and illusions, and she's trying to like free herself. A group of X-Men come, including Cypher, and they're looking for this missing mutant. And the Sidri, who are kind of under the control of Lady Mastermind, who has been captured by them, it's kind of a complicated story to figure out. I had to read it a few times to make sense of it. Uh, they start taking on various forms, like Rachel Summers, to like haunt the X-Men. And she's like asking for help, but the Sidri are also fighting the X-Men. And eventually Cypher uses his powers to be able to communicate with them. And they basically agree to leave the Sidri alone. Like, we'll let you have our mansion. We'll let you stay here in peace. Uh, peace out. We'll see you later. Uh, and like, there's a group of Sidri that take on a humanoid form. And they're like, okay, bye. It's a cute story. It's, it's beautiful art. And it's a little tough to keep track of. Uh, I had to read it two or three times to make sense of it. Uh, I don't know if you've read this one or if you have any thoughts on, on this one. No. I really, again, um, you know, I used to, I would read the comic um, and then I would read it again and I would index the comics and I would take all the, the information as I index them and add the characters, appearances and names and everything to the master lists that I kept track of at the time. Um, now, what I end up doing is I'm either uh, I'm either reading reading comics like right before I go to bed, maybe after a glass of wine or two, um, <laughs> and uh, or or you know looking at um on Marvel Unlimited when I'm on like the treadmill or something at the gym, but I don't you know it's like I when I you'd read it and then read it a second time in detail all the information they would really stay in your mind, um you know I really don't have that same level of uh memory of things well, especially when they're putting out 100 stories books a in the last the yeah. last stories the last 15 years i just don't you know unless i research them and do the characters on the appendix um i'll, I'll you know use another source like oh i didn't even remember the characters in that and then you look it up and read it and you do remember it but 
That's why it's fun to do these uh, these things where you stack them all up in order. It felt to me like Hickman had better, bigger plans for the Sidri as maybe a part of a larger story. And he's great at that like world building where he assembles all these pieces and ties it up later. We've seen him do it with Fantastic Four and Avengers and Secret Warriors. Uh, he left the X-Men books earlier than I think he intended to. And the stories kind of went different directions. But we see the Sidri as bounty hunters again in Secret X-Men number one, which is the title by Teeny Howard that features all of the X-Men that did not win the first X-Men team vote. So you got like Banshee and Boom Boom and Strong Guy and all those characters. And they're after Deathbird. They've been hired to capture her. They fight the X-Men. Banshee scatter, uh, shatters, uh, excuse me, scatters them with a sonic scream. Uh, and then they capture Deathbird and make it off. And then later Deathbird escapes. We see that in Marauders. She gets away from them. And then uh, the, the Sidri that are in the mansion back on Earth uh, they are disrupted by danger, the the robot personification of the danger room, because she's pregnant with Madison Jeffrey's baby, which is a whole story that's crazy. Uh, and that's in a Wolverine, uh, the newest volume of Wolverine number 23. And we learn that she is now staying in the mansion and the Sidri that were there have been scattered. And that's kind of where they're left. These are characters that have a lot to explore about their origins uh, I think those mutant members have further story that could be told. Uh, and they're just a fun, formidable threat that show up once in a while for the X-Men to blast apart. Uh, as we review them out loud like this, uh, Jeff, is there any themes or, or ideas that stands out to you? What makes a good Sidri story? What do you like about these characters? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think like the, like the stories that have them as these, you know, kind of, they're almost, you know, drone-like, uh, robotic they just you know come in they're methodical they're single-minded in what they're doing um and dangerous and come in and overwhelming by numbers or or you know merging into more powerful threats are kind of the common theme that we see with them i definitely agree and it, since you made a point of it it would kind of be interesting to have like uh you know cadre k of the of the scrolls um you know meet up with the the sidrian mutants and maybe there's some you know the mutant mutant races society whatever um that could gather together with those two and then i was reading that i didn't i didn't remember deathbird um being pregnant did she have a child did she lose that child uh she is this I'm, I'm getting ready to do a summer's family episode and there's a lot of summer's family craziness but one of them is vulcan has an egg <laughs> with deathbird the uh and we don't know what happened to it but it has been referenced in recent comics deathbird's unhatched summer's baby is somewhere off in space waiting for that story to be told <laughs> all right might wait 20 years for it and then all of a sudden it'll, it'll be revealed and maybe i mean right. xavier and lilandra have a baby who's running the, yeah. the our empire now so you never know there's all kinds of stories <laughs> yeah yeah and I, when you brought up madison jeffries too and he like he got like imprisoned in Krakoa, like down with Sabretooth because of some like minor infraction. Like they have like these three rules and one is like respect, don't hurt Krakoa or whatever. And he like did something with a machine that hurt Krakoa a little bit inadvertently. They throw him down with Sabretooth, you know, and I seemed just kind of like a, plot device or whatever for the story to have him involved with we see we see madison jeffries uh uh fall in love with danger during the like x club era on krakoa or uh, excuse me during the utopia era and yeah. then danger joins all new x factor and like makes out with gambit and tries to have sex with polaris and then ends up sleeping with cypher so she's like super into human mutants now <laughs> and, and now she's had a baby uh but madison is being featured in victor lavelle's uh, three-part Sabretooth series so yeah he's a part of that he was in the pit but now they're on the run and the the new Sabretooth and the Exile series he's like running their ship as they run across to fight the the villains he's 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 being used it's going to be interesting to see where Victor Lavelle uh, takes him he's it's a great series actually I'm really liking the new Sabretooth stuff I've got a whole a whole long box of comics that I haven't read yet and I just I end up having them um, in a row and reading them in a group and so I'm like right now I just got into the new Daredevil series and I caught up the first six issues on um, uh, Marvel Unlimited that's and then I have two yeah, more yeah. that are two more that are out. But that's kind of how I, I'll end up reading, you know, eight in a row at a time. And then I just stick them back in the box. And as as new ones come in, 
I kind of um, read the series in, in a collective. I still I still provide Jeff with uh, with my personal summaries of the issues that I'm reading. I'll wait till the series is done. I just sent you uh, Steve Orlando's Marauders uh, arc this morning. Uh, it is complicated and wonderful, but yes, it's a lot to keep track of, my friend. Uh, this has been fun to delve into the Sidri. I uh, I like these characters. It's a it's a kind of a random ancillary X Men foe that probably wouldn't even make anyone's like top one hundred X Men villains list. But they have some cool little corners, and there's some potential with some of these characters that's interesting. Uh, their initial appearance by Chris Claremont is easily their best, and I really like the Ben Rab two parter that we talked about as well. Uh, but mostly they just kind of get tossed into the background once in a while or they're 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 on a quick page or two. Uh, but yeah, they're 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 fun characters. This has been fun to delve in. Uh, as we're wrapping up, my friend, thank you for hanging out with me. This is great to just interface. Uh, it was wild when you were on my show. We'd never really had much of a conversation. All of our contact for 20 years has been over email. So it's fun to meet face to face from time to time. Uh, what would you like to talk about? Where can people find you online? And is there anything you want to plug knowing we're going to put this episode out around uh, April 12th? um no you know uh you never know um when there's going to be another uh handbook project um and there are a few things i don't think they're allowed to um talk about yet but they're definitely working on some things uh the appendix um i'm uh we're we just celebrated our 20th anniversary um of that website about a year and a half ago and so we're working on a, a big project for the 25th anniversary um and uh you know there'll be another uh, there's going to be i think some other um you know events out in the um in the coming year that uh, jacob and um luke are putting together but otherwise just trying to keep the random assortment um covering the whole length and breadth of the whole marvel multiverse megaverse and, and beyond well jeff you are my only uh veterinary surgeon bodybuilder comic book nerd friend <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to know you, my friend. Uh, you can find Graymalk and PP like podcast on Twitter, Graymalk and underscore lane on Instagram. Uh, the next couple uh, Patreon episodes after this are going to feature Professor Power with J.M. Mateus, as well as the character Lifeguard uh, with my friend Jamie Faye. On the main show, the, uh, the next episode you can watch for after this is uh, a review of Cable Minus One with the incredible transgender writer Charlie Jane Anders. And then we have the trial of Craven the Hunter right after that. So there's a lot of fun things coming up. Uh, Jeff, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. This was a great time. And we will see you all back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane's Patreon.